if one examines for a second or if one tries to define the proper noun American, one will discover, first of all, that to be an American means a catalog of virtues. We have something called I am an American Day, which I gather is meant to reassure everybody. <laughs> And to be an American in these terms apparently means, check me out, you think about it. <laughs> apparently means that though Greeks, Armenians, Turks, Frenchmen, Englishmen, Scotch, Scotsmen, Italians may be corrupt, sexual, unpredictable, lazy, evil, a little lower than the angels. <laughs> we are not. <laughs> Quite overlooking the fact that the country was settled by Englishmen, Scots, Germans, Turks, and Armenians, a little later to be sure. Every nation under heaven is here. And not, after all, for a very long time. I think that it might be useful in order to survive our present crisis to do what any individual does, is forced to do, to survive his crisis, which is to look back on his beginnings. The beginnings of this country, it seems to be, it's a banality to say it, but alas, it has to be said. The beginnings of this, of this country have nothing whatever to do with the myth we have created about it. The country did not come about because a handful of people in Europe, various parts of Europe, said, I want to be free, and probably built a boat or a raft <laughs> and crossed the Atlantic Ocean. Not at all. Not at all. Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys. Gregory Brian Cook. Hey, Robert Wesley Brand. <laughs> good morning to you, brother. How you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. <laughs> now, are you a native it, Chicagoan? I am. I am. Born and raised outside. You know, my grandparents came up in the 30s in the Great Migration. Right. So, yeah, I've been here a few generations. So where did your grandparents come uh, from in the Southwest state? My grandmother came from Mississippi, Greenville, Mississippi. My grandfather from Garyville, Louisiana. Garyville, Louisiana. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's your grandfather's so, side. So uh, my maternal uh, grandparents. Maternal, and, okay. 
you know, I was really close to them. I grew up in a three-flat building. Mm -hmm. So my family, my mom and dad, we were on the second floor. My grandparents were on the first floor. Mm -hmm. You know, really the first 18 years of my life, I was always in 10 feet of my grandparents every day. So uh, they were a huge influence and presence on me. Their perspective, their presence, the magical quality of just being there. And when I needed something, I was fortunate. My grandfather, even when I got my car towed at night because I was someplace I wasn't supposed to be as a teenager, he <laughs> right. would come and help me out. Right. So right there, like you and I don't know each other that well. We're going to get into all of that, like how we met and all of that. But even what we've just talked sure. about so far on your maternal side, coming from Mississippi and mm -hmm. Louisiana. Now, my mother and father come from a small town outside of Pittsburgh called Braddock, right? A steel mill town back in the day. Braddock. Yeah, Braddock. Mm -hmm. From General Braddock. My mother's father, so my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, like your maternal grandfather came from Garyville, Louisiana. My maternal grandfather came from Mentor City, Mississippi. <laughs> so that's down there with your maternal grandmother. Right. That's where he came from, Mentor yeah. City, Mississippi. So he came from a family. This is my, this is my maternal grandfather, after whom I'm named. He was Otto Wesley Kimbrough. I'm Robert Wesley Branch, so I take my middle name from him. Now, he comes from a big family from Mentor City, Mississippi. When they migrated from the South, they went to Chicago. So I have a huge base of family, or did at one time, in Chicago. My grandfather, after whom I'm named, comes from his brothers and sisters all settled in Chicago when they came from Mississippi and he went to Pittsburgh. All that to say our families have crossed somewhere. I'm sure. Yeah. I know uh, in the DNA, my brother did that online DNA and our family passed from North Carolina first. Some way, you know, uh, those paths crossed. Mm -hmm. Now, did your brother get his, do you know if he got ancestry DNA? Did he get African DNA? How much does he know about the African origins of your family? Or do you know about that? He did. I know the Ivory Coast Benin, Togo, and Ghana yeah. were the three countries where we are from. Right. Um, that's about where we're all, that's all in that same Gulf of Guinea slave trade coast back in the day. Like that's all them countries line up. I'm just a little lower than you. Gabon, my father's side comes Gabon. from yep, okay. Gabon. And my mother's side comes from an island called Biko Island, B-I-O-K-O, -O, right off the coast of Cameroon. There's this island called Biko mm. Island, and that's where her people come from. So she's from the Bubi people, B-U-B-I. That's my mother's side. And my father's side comes from the people in Gabon, the Togo and the Teke and the Kota people, which all of this I found out through AfricanAncestry.com. I did the Ancestry.com uh, okay. first, but then there's an African company, too, that does it. They can get you down to your tribes. Wow, okay. Yeah. I want to know. I want to find that out. Yeah. Myself. A lot of people don't, you know, they're not interested. They don't want to give their saliva for DNA. And I get all of that. I totally get it. When I've met people along the way, brother, you know, in different professional settings and you just listen to them tell their stories. These are non-black people. Many of them that I've run across know where they come from. They can tell you what grandfather did this and grandmother did. And they can go back because of their history from Europe to America. And the way that that passage happened for their family, they can tell you back, even back to Europe and what was going on there. See, we can't do that. We can't go back to Africa. Like that part of our history is lost to us pretty much because of everything that happened in our passage in the middle passage. The more research I do, you end up stopping because the records aren't there. It's just not there right. for us. 
Yeah. Just when I go into other communities, I can't help but feel that there's a part missing for us, a connection, yes. an identity, something that we can draw on that yeah. is not rooted in what happened to us here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the history of it is trauma. Yeah. Basically. So, <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Almost at, at every point, you know, we get into a time machine. It's like, ah, I don't want to be here. Uh, no, I don't want to be here. So. And what do you think about this? I want to get your thoughts on this. Being an American, not even taking it down to the detail of an African-American. Yeah, Our yeah. sense of freedom. We just feel and I think have felt free from some of these things that we would perceive. And I'm speaking for myself. I just want to get your thoughts, though, that we perceive what happened in, let's say, what we would call a third world or an emerging or developing country would be dealing with things like that, that we as Americans wouldn't see ourselves dealing with. And the rest of the world wouldn't necessarily see us dealing with. It makes you think about what it means to be an American. That's what I want to get your thoughts on. That idea, there's definitely a sense that it can't happen to us, that we're special. And we certainly are privileged and we have a lot of resources. Yeah, there was definitely that thought that, yeah, those countries, they don't have the hospitals, they don't have the capacity or whatever sort of magical thinking uh, that we have about who we are. Mm-hmm. And especially this notion of individuality and it's the other person's responsibility. But actually, we're connected. It's a myth. I think if anything has been shown through this is that, yeah, this idea we have that this rugged individualism is just nonsense. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we see all of the failures or fractures or weaknesses in our society, mm-hmm. the social safety net. Yeah, it uh, makes me yeah, think yeah, about what it means to be an American, particularly after this whole incident of January 6th. We can get into that or not later. But it really, again, sure, yeah. the question comes up. What does it mean? Like all of my ideas about America being American, like what does that mean? A lot of it for black people is unchanged because we have always known things and had a reality that a lot of non-black people don't yeah. have just because of history. So we know some things. We always yeah. know when it's going down and what it, we know what it is when we see it, right? You know, we know what we're looking at. Well, Right. But but real quick, back to what we were talking about. So on that level, what it means to be an American. So let's go a step deeper. And we're talking about being an African-American. Is that a term that you use to describe yourself or do you use black? How do you talk about you? I use African-American, mm-hmm. that term to describe myself. That's what I am. Right. And the reason in the entirety of my experience from myself and my ancestors has been because we were African people. Mm-hmm. And the the laws that we had to live by, all of that was because we were African people. So, yeah, that's how I identify myself. And black is fine. I call it say that too, but mm-hmm. you're African-American for sure for me. Let's talk about that. So how in your heart, how close do you feel to Africa, to the continent, to the land? And that continent is full of, as we all know, many countries. So what it means to be African is a whole, you know, series of conversations right there because it's not one thing. Like, that's the biggest landmass on the planet. It's so diverse is my point, as we all know. So how closely do you feel connected to Africa as an African-American? My goal in 2020 was to take my first trip Mm -hmm. to Africa. That was one of the things that was on the list. Uh, Mm -hmm. And of course, that didn't happen. But I feel every culture, there are things that I don't even understand, language and culture, that even though we lost a whole bunch of who we were, is still rooted in Africa. Mm -hmm. So that part of it is 
a natural organic connection that I feel. Even before I knew what tribe or country my people had come from, I felt that that was a connection. And then a few years ago, I had written a screenplay. Mm -hmm. And when I started, I wanted this uniquely American thing. And as I was thinking about what's uniquely American in the entire world is African-American people. Mm-hmm. So you rock and roll and hip hop and jazz and all of the art and poetry and how it drives culture. And for Stevie Wonder to Michael Jordan to Muhammad Ali, and I don't know that there are other countries that have, and I know we do the celebrity thing here in America, but they just have these personalities. They can only be because they were these African people who came to America. So that's something that's uniquely American to me, the things that we do in the world. But it, it wouldn't happen. You couldn't come from Italy and America and be this special, unique thing. You had to be African and American. Mm-hmm. So there's that understanding that lets me know I couldn't be me without Africa. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense. it makes perfect sense, brother. And when you think about those Africans who came to America in the era that I believe you're speaking of back in the day, our ancestors. I think of, as I hear you talk about that, the Africans that I know that come from Africa today to live in America. Because what I find is that some of the brothers and sisters, I'm thinking of Brother Kwame, who is originally from Zimbabwe and now lives in Johannesburg in South Africa. And I'm thinking of a woman that I used to work with at Discovery Channel, Zanelli, who was originally born in South Africa. I think she's Zulu. No, she's Kosa because she can do the clicking. This was fascinating when I first met her brother because she can do the clicking. You know how you hear the clicking in the back of the throat? Like if you're not from that tribe, if you're not Kosa, you can't do that. I don't think Zulus do that. So anyway, through knowing them over the years and listening to them and when I knew another brother named Gabriel that I met in Paris who ended up coming to America to visit, I remember him saying, just sitting in front of the Capitol, the monument saying, this is like a dream come true for me. So their ideas of what it means at least the people that i'm talking about of what it meant to be an american you know i had to really think because a lot of this i take for granted i was born in washington dc i grew up there i see the monument all the time so sometimes yeah. these things we can take for granted the mythology of america is pretty powerful mm-hmm. um, the simple things like the peaceful transfer of power which we had uh, seemed to have a pretty good handle on until january right 6th. Uh, <laughs> right you know, that's significant, you know, that people can just, we can have an election and then folks go, okay, we lost and move on. We take that for granted that it happened. I can't imagine, I guess, what it would be like to come here as a person from Africa with all the media programming that you've gotten about this country. And yes. People. Even when I first went to Paris and met African people living in Paris. So I'm as a black American man meeting black African men speaking French, not because they're French, but because they're from Senegal. And that was, you know, colonized by the French, you know. So, yeah, so meeting each other and talking to each other. I'm looking at them and they're wearing New York Yankee baseball caps. That's how we met, you know, because we're. I thought yeah. they were American. So that was interesting. And then getting to know them and talking to them and going to their houses and being around them and hearing their stories. I realized that at least for the people that I knew, they were coming from one of them's father was an airline pilot for like Senegal Airways, you know. So I was talking to people in their country who were middle class, who were able to send their children abroad for education. I realized that early on that I was talking to a certain level of African brother in Paris. Right now, 
That being mm-hmm. said, brother, this will never leave my mind, this story. Then we're going to go back to some other stuff. I want to know what you were taught and told and saw and experienced about African people when you were growing up in Chicago. That's what I want to get to. But first, I want to say this. Sure. That even though I knew I was dealing with a brother who came from an upper or middle class family in Senegal and was now studying mm-hmm. in Paris, thinking of this one brother, Brother Gabriel. When we went on a train from Paris to Amsterdam on a train, when they came by the, I guess would be the, what did they call him? Not a porter, but the man who takes the tickets. Ticket. Yeah, the sure. ticket master, yeah. him. When he yeah. came ticket by, agent. yeah, exactly. Yeah. When he came by, to look at passports and tickets my brother that i was with was sitting on the aisle so he showed his first and he was from africa so when he opened his his was from senegal i mean it just took forever i thought the brother was just gonna bring out a microscope and go on every single page it was embarrassing i was embarrassed for him it was the equivalent of us getting pulled over on the side of the road for no reason because we got profiled I'm sitting next to him going, oh, my God, this is I was embarrassed for him. And he's keeping his dignity as a lot of African brothers will. You know, he kept his dignity the whole time. We both knew we were black men at that time. But here's the thing. When they were finally finished and he asked me for my passport, I pulled it out. I had to wait. And he saw that it was a U.S. passport. He just waved it off. He never even took it out of my hand. He waved me on. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm okay. Not because I'm black, because I'm just as black as this brother next to me. But because I'm an American, he ain't fucking with me. He ain't even looking. Now, this was in the 90s. That probably wouldn't happen today. But I'm telling you, this was in the 90s, 1994, when this happened. So he didn't even take my passport out of my hand. And that's when I knew, brother, that the perception of a black American, at least from this particular white European man, was that black American was better than black African. Now, forgive me for my language, but this is what it is. In my mind at that moment, I thought, okay, see, he's the nigger of Europe. They treating him like a nigger. Straight up. They not treating me like a nigger, but they are treating him like a nigger. Second class. Yes. Always subject to scrutiny. Yeah, yeah. So even though he was from a middle class, in my mind, middle class family in Senegal, studying abroad, the Europeans, the ones who colonized him, were still treating him like a nigga. But not me. He messed with my American passport, yeah. didn't even look at it, didn't even take it out of my hand. And I thought, oh, my God. Which was funny for me because I was expecting. See, this is what goes on in the mind of a black American man. Or at least this one. I was expecting, Brother Gregory, that they were going to treat me the same way. I'm born and raised in Washington, D.C. So I just thought, you know, okay, now it's my turn. Never happened. I'm sure because they see folks, African people who are coming from Africa, as trying to probably the same way that we, not we, not me, but some of our American society see people from South America and Central America. Like you're coming in to take something. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you're trying to immigrate here and, and turn us into something else. I'm sure that the whites in Europe see black Americans as they must be successful that they're here. and They're not coming here to take anything because they have stuff because they're already American. Mm-hmm. So, what did you see? What yeah. did you hear? What were you taught? What were you exposed to? What was your experience of Africans, people who were living on the continent, when you were being raised a young boy in Chicago, on the south side of Chicago? Were there African enclaves of people, of Africans who lived in different neighborhoods? What did you see? Mm, you know, there were, but they weren't on the south side. So the Africans who uh, were in Chicago, the recently immigrated folks, they lived up north. Really growing up in Chicago, till I went to high school, I lived in an all-black neighborhood. So mm-hmm. there were a few people I would see, had a few white teachers, and I played tennis, 
So I would go out to this place and I would interact with some white folks out there. So it was just African-American who were here. So I didn't have a lot of exposure. My aunt traveled to Africa when I was probably six or seven. Mm-hmm. And I saw all of her pictures and it looked very not as developed to me as America was. There were street vendors and all the roads weren't necessarily paved the same way they were here in the photos. So that was really my exposure that and in the history books. You know, and I guess in maybe in Black History Month, we learned some of the kings and queens and learned about some sub-Saharan cultures. But, yeah, it was very limited. So, yeah, I didn't have a lot of perspective um, until I went to high school. And there were some folks whose parents had immigrated. Mm-hmm. Um, There's a guy named James Asiambi who was in my class. And so and that was really the first interaction that I had with African people who had just come to America. Mm-hmm. And they were different. There's a sense that I did notice having to prove that you belong right. here. And I had never really known that because, yeah, I belong here. Like, we were in the fields in Tennessee and Mississippi. And so, yeah, that, I guess that was one of the things I did notice as a teenager, that they didn't have that sense of, I belong here. This is mine just as much as it is anybody else's. Mm-hmm. And that, I'm speaking for them in my imagination as a writer. I'm making up a story now based upon what you just said. But now I understand how you could feel like, because in your mind, if you're coming here, right? I'm thinking of just my migration from one part of Maryland where I lived for 16 years, Bethesda. And I'm thinking of that drive that I made that night, early morning, to come here, changing my whole life, to come here three hours later to live at the beach, right? So that's a small migration, but it's a migration. It's a life-changing experience nonetheless. And on that drive, I'm remembering what my life was and had no clue what my life was becoming. And I'm sure some of those same thoughts go through your mind when you make a passage. And when people made that middle passage from whatever generation and from whatever culture, I'm leaving something to go to something else because, and James Baldwin said this beautifully. The people who settled the country, the people who came here, came here for one reason, no matter how disguised. They came here because they thought it would be better here than where they were. That's why they came. And that's the only reason that they came. Anybody who was making it in England did not get on the Mayflower. (laughs) This is important. It is important that one begin to recognize this because part of the dilemma of this country is that it has managed to believe the myth it has created about its own past. Which is another way of saying that it has entirely denied its past. And we all know, if we think about it, what happens to a person who is born, let us say, where I was born, in Harlem, and goes to the world pretending 
He was born in certain place. However odd this may sound, also happens to a nation. A nation being when it finally comes into existence, the achievement of the people who make it up. And the quality of the nation being absolutely at the mercy, defined, dictated by the nature and the quality of the people who make it up. The only reason why people have ever come to America, no matter how they make it look or how they make it sound, is because they thought that they would have a better life here than they had wherever they were. That's why they came. Right. Except for the black man. We didn't come like that. No. But everybody else did. Right. I'm embarrassed to tell you and to say this, that because that's why I asked you what you got growing up about African people. Because I'm embarrassed to tell you that when I think of the memories of what I learned and what I was taught, I don't think I was taught anything at home about African people because I don't know how much my parents knew about Africans. Right. I didn't grow up in what you would call a black nationalist or a black conscious household. I did not. My parents certainly participated in history. They were at the March on Washington. They did what they did and were around when a lot of this happened. But I didn't grow up in that kind of Afrocentric household like many of us have. So they've been exposed to these people in this history all along. I was not. So a lot of stuff I didn't get until I was older and growing up and, and learning and reaching out and finding authors and work experiences. And I learned a lot more in college, of course, along the way. My point is what I remember most about Africans is Tarzan movies. Johnny Wisemiller. Like that's yeah, I was gonna say the same that's thing. what sticks with me is Tarzan and Jane. Like those yeah. movies were my ideas of Africa. So it was wild and untamed and uncivilized. And I got that from American socialization and American programming. That's the matrix in America. That's what that matrix looks like. You'll grow up at the time that I grew up. I'm 54, so I'm older than you are. But even still, those were the movies. And that's what I was seeing of Africa. And then I compare that to Cecil B. DeMille's and the Ten Commandments. So then you see Egypt, which is not necessarily being presented to you as something that's black, but it's certainly being presented to you as something that is grand. And so just contrasting that with what I was learning, I knew that Egypt, I did know enough to know that Egypt was in Africa, but I certainly didn't think of Egypt the same way that I thought of Tarzan and Jane in Africa. So my programming of what Africa was, was Tarzan and Jane. And in addition to that, my next door neighbor, Mr. Ferguson, He was a military man and he had a subscription to National Geographic magazine and he kept everyone. So whenever you went over his house in the basement, they were all there. So my other ideas of Africa came from what I saw on the covers and as I flipped through the National Geographic magazines. So I knew there were tribes. I knew they had bowls in their lips. I knew the women went bare breasted. Mm -hmm. I saw all that stuff that National Geographic was putting in there. If I ever saw any developed cities or any African business people, I don't never ever saw those images. If I did, they didn't stay with me. Yeah. For me, yeah, it was not much of the Tarzan and Jane. I was thinking of that earlier because even now on YouTube, Mm -hmm. you would think that black people either didn't exist or were, as you said, uncivilized, just barely human. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way they're portrayed, um, and the, the the crazy part is, is that Egypt is, is in Africa. So where would they have gotten it from, except the people who migrated up from the sub-Saharan area exactly. and dispersed? 
yeah, the, the root of things is always cut off to us. And I'll even uh, go this far, brother. Yeah. I'll even go this far. See what you think about this. You say, where else would they have come from? Unless they migrated up from some of the sub-Saharan areas in Africa and come up into Egypt. And I think that is 100% true. I'll even go this far. Just as that migration came up from Southern Africa, I think it also came down from Asia down into the tip of Egypt across across the waters too. So when they use the term Afro-Asiatic, I think there's some truth to that. Because I think that migration was happening in both ways. And I think the spirituality of Egypt is that it was these two lands, that migration from the south up to the north and that migration from the north down to the south. These two lands that had to be reconciled in Egypt. There's a lot of spirituality that that would would take us off into a whole other conversation. But my point is that I'll even go as far as to say that, yeah, there were some influences from above. So that doesn't make the people when they meet, that doesn't make the people I don't know how to, I don't have the human language to say this other than the way that it would resonate with us today. That don't make the people all black. It does make them a mix. So you got to look at, I always got to look at at what point in history am I talking about? And and I, one thing I learned from a brother named Ivan Van Sertima, a scholar, a brother who's now passed on to the ancestors, but he always said in his studies and in his scholarly presentations, the farther back you go in history, the blacker it gets. <laughs> and I think he is right the money with that just keep going back just keep going keep going yeah so if you want to stop at 325 when you have cleopatra and you know the roman and the greek influences on egypt yeah we can talk about that they probably did look a lot more like elizabeth taylor than they look like you know my mother or your mother right but if but keep going back 2000 years in egypt go back 3000 years go back 10,000. they are as black as they can get so it depends on how far back you want to go. I can talk about Egypt all day long. I love it. There's so much that they left us to ponder. You know what I'm saying? But one of the things that yeah. that I recognize from all of that being said about Egypt and the North and the South coming together is that it's about filters. I've learned as an American black man, it's about filters and the filters that I allow to come into my life. And we can see that in the world today. Most of us, many of us are so divided, Brother Gregory, because we just listen to the stuff that confirms our opinion and our orientation on the world, whatever that is. So we silo, as they call it, you know what I'm saying? In that world that supports everything that we already believe in. Even on my spirituality search, brother, I always said, you know, I started on the pew of the Christian church. And when I went on this spiritual journey, I said, you know what, God, you might lead me right back to this pew, but I'm going to go on this journey. You may never lead me back here. I may never come into another church again. And it might lead me right back to the same seat, but I'm going to go on this journey wherever you take me in my consciousness, you know? Yeah. I can't even imagine if I had never, I went to Catholic school for 12 years, mm-hmm. if I had never picked up the Tao Te Ching yep. and read it, yep. or any other book of understanding, mm-hmm. I would just be a different person emotionally, because I would be confined to that Catholic doctrine. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we had met yet, I was leaving the shoot. It was Yonla Fix My Life. So we were leaving and I was riding with Chris Condor. Mm-hmm. And there's a sign on a church because we were leaving that house that uh, we used to film at mm-hmm. up north in Chicago. And there was a church and it said, yeah, Jesus died for you. Mm-hmm. And I thought, when I, I understand what that means. I understand the symbol of, of sacrifice. And, all, and I just thought, that's a pretty heavy thing to lay on a <laughs> seven or eight year old. 
Right. <laughs> so like a responsibility, like right. I was tortured and murdered for you. You know, I just remember as we were leaving, seeing that sign with him, and I was like, wow, that's a heavy thing to lay on somebody. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't ever step out of that and perhaps see it as not only for the connotation but the denotation Mm -hmm. you would be uh, confused and spiritually your spirit may not be free because it would feel constrained by a limited understanding of what it means to have a spirit and to have an inner relationship with the power with God Yep, that's so well said, brother, because that is very, very well said. That point when you say those who don't ever step out of that doctrine, that way of being, whatever denomination, you didn't use these words, but whatever denomination it is that they've tradition, probably a better word, they've come up in, whatever that is. If you never step out of that programming and that uh, I would even go this far, whatever religion you are, it is an indoctrination until you come to a place of what I would term a spiritual awakening, which is what you talked about. That point where you step out was your words of the programming that you've been raised up into. Like that's an awakening. Not everybody does that. Some people never leave. And we can see that with the Palestinians and the Israelis. Some people are never going to leave their programming. It's what it is. And it's what it's always going to be. We don't even have to go that far. We can look in our own communities and our own families and see that. Right. Those of us who do Mm -hmm. step out, as you say, have an awakening, as I say, that leads you to a whole other level and other way of being that I hate to put it like this or I hesitate to put it like this, it begins to, or it could begin to separate you from those around you, even those closest to you, because they're still in the program. Okay. They're still in the program. Mm -hmm. So you've been awakened and lifted out of that. And then you realize, Oh my God, that was a program. Oh my God. They're in the program. Oh my God. I'm not in the program. So that's an awakening. (laughs) So just integrating that alone takes some time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine how much went into programming you. So the awakening of it is going to take the process and be a process as well. Yes. And that's a difficult part of it. I think what would make it difficult is the clinging, the holding on to things that are familiar and then changing. Mm-hmm. Cause then that means you're going to have to be different from other people and it makes you stand out. And sometimes that is uncomfortable. I think for a lot of folks, so they sort of don't want to change. Mm-hmm. or take on any new information and admit, you know, hey, maybe I was wrong. And then I'd have to admit all these other decisions I made based on that perhaps weren't right. And that's a tough thing for people and me sometimes. We go, ooh, wow. And men that's in a, general. That's that. part of our social program. <laughs> right. You know, not necessarily yeah. to admit when you're wrong or need help or, you know, that's not being a man. That's an old school, traditional social program. That many of us, our fathers, our fathers' fathers, our fathers' fathers' fathers, this is was their way of being. You know, they would probably, if you think about your father's father, let's just go that far, your grandfather, all of them on your father's side and, and your grandfather's on your mother's side, right? Whether you know them or not, but just think of them. They would look at our newscast today. I think of those gentlemen. I think of the ones on my side, just my grandfathers. So my parents, fathers, right? They would look at Mm -hmm. some of this world today about transsexuals and genderless society and your pronouns. People ask you, what are your pronouns? And they would look at us like they were, they would be stupefied. Like that's so not the world that they knew and grew up in. Right. 
Right, right. No, it, it, right. Absolutely. They would be not understanding. It was very simple and black and white binary for them. Yes. But my grandmother would always tell me the story of my grandfather's brothers. And at his funeral, and he was married, and at his funeral, a lot of men showed up. And they had their hair was pressed and they had on fur coats and stuff. So it occurred to people at that moment that he had a secret life that people didn't back then weren't free to be who they were. Mm -hmm. And so he had lived up into this time of his death and people finally, you get at the funeral, oh, he was a different person. Mm -hmm. We didn't even really know who he was and he had to conceal that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they come from a totally different generation. Totally (laughs) different generation. And yet, this is what I've been thinking. I want to hear what you think on this. And yet, when I'm watching the events of, let's say, recently, January 6th events, when I'm watching that, As a black man with a level of consciousness in America, I know what I'm looking at. I know the spirit of the people that is on them and in them as they do what they do. That is the same spirit, even though I wasn't here, that 200 years ago, white folks had burning crosses, you know, night riding, raiding people. where We were in terror in the woods, fleeing oppression and persecution in the night. The Ku Klux Klan originated in the wake of the nation's greatest trauma, the Civil War. In 1865, decommissioned Confederate officers in Pulaski, Tennessee, formed a fraternal social club. They called themselves the Ku Klux Klan, from the Greek word for circle, kuklos. It was essentially a club where they were going to pull pranks. They started to dress up in very elaborate costumes and go out and try to terrorize freed slaves. They would pose as Confederate officers come back from the dead. The reality is is that the Klan of Reconstruction spent its time murdering people, throwing people off bridges, hanging them from trees. When the federal government clamped down in 1871, the Klan dissolved and lay dormant for decades. The birth of a nation sparked a revival of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s. The Klan's ideology of white supremacy and what they called 100% Americanism resonated across the country. In 1925, 50,000 Klansmen and women gathered in Washington in a vivid display of their numbers. Four million Americans claimed Klan membership. By the 1930s, bad press and power struggles had ripped apart the once powerful Klan. But not for long. In March 1965, a white housewife, mother, and civil rights worker named Viola Liuzzo was gunned down by Alabama Klansmen. The brazen murder pushed the federal government into a full-scale assault on the Ku Klux Klan. In October 1965, the House Un-American Activities Committee, known for its probes into communist and civil rights groups, opened hearings on the Klan. Building on FBI intelligence, HUAC investigators developed a strategy to follow the money 
and held well-publicized hearings on Capitol Hill. Embarrassed by HUAC revelations that North Carolina had the largest Klan organization in the nation, state officials cracked down. By then, the North Carolina Klan had dwindled to a fraction of its former size. On September 15th, fellow Klansmen stapled their membership cards to a giant cross and ceremoniously set it ablaze. African-Americans are organized and they're just not gonna take this from the Ku Klux Klan anymore. A lot of whites are finding their racial anxieties channeled into other political avenues, into the Republican Party. And so for all those reasons, the Klan, it becomes a shameful thing again. It's the same spirit. See, the people come and go. We only get 80, 90, 100 years. But the spirits live on. It's the same spirit that breached the Capitol. It's the same spirit, brother. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. My parents and all the folks I know in their generation, that's what they were feeling. That 50s creeping back here. Exactly. Like, oh, this reminds us of the 1950s. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's... uh, that's very true. Yeah, the spirit, the energy is all there. It's there. It's the same. It cycles. Ruby Bridges is walking to school. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It cycles itself. And, and and it's so not to get, you know, too esoteric, as they would say. But you just look at the God has shown us, shows us so much. You just look at the seasons. It's just four seasons. They cycle over and over again. They cycle over. So that tells yeah. you that life is circular. These spirits live in these cycles. We only get X amount of years, but they're here over and over and over doing the same thing, working out whatever they're working out, you know, cosmically or whatever. Yeah. So it is very, very interesting. You mentioned earlier when we met, and I can take it back to I sent you some pictures of August 15th, 2013. I sent you some pictures of that day. And I'm looking at this and I see this is the first time I met this brother on this shoot. What do you see when you look at these pictures? Like, who is that Gregory Brian Cook? Who was that man that day? Uh, You know, I look at the pictures and I'm looking at them now. I remember feeling good about what I was doing, the work, like being part of that. Mm -hmm. And that had been important to me, to be a part of something that I felt good about doing. It wasn't just a job. Mm -hmm. So even when I was tired, Working on Yamba Fix My Life is different. There are times when I work on jobs and I get to a point and I'm frustrated and I'm mad at people because I'm there because I'm not particularly happy about the work that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean anything to me. I'm like, this is just for money. I don't even care. I don't even want to be, why am I here? Just those voices that go on in my head when I'm starting to run out of patience because I'm fatigued. Mm-hmm. But that, I didn't have that. And as I look, I feel contented. I can look at my face and one of the photos I'm smiling and the other I just he was at ease Mm -hmm, and I look at uh, the person that's in those photos so yeah you were remarkable to me because I'm working with this production, Harpo Productions was doing Iyanla Fix My Life at that time in Chicago as an internal production of Harpo Studios for the emerging OWN network, right? This was their second season. Iyanla had done a series of shows before then. I was consulting by phone. The second season where I met you that day was the first season that I was there on location as we shot it, right? 
So it was remarkable to me having okay. met the Harpo folks. So it was remarkable to me to meet a brother. Like so when you when I saw you, I was like, Whoa, <laughs> okay, so that's yeah. make note of that. So here I am, click click, you know, making note of that. That was what was remarkable for me, that you were there. And I was very happy to see you there and w- made a note in my mind to be very supportive of anything that I could do to make the experience good for you and for me for both of us. Cause there was a lot of unknown for me. Sure. At that point with this crowd of people, you know, what I knew about them is that these are holdovers, many of these people in my perception and what I was told of the Oprah Winfrey show infrastructure. So, right. That day that we met, how did you come to work with Harpo Productions at that time? I had been working on the Oprah Winfrey show for a few years before, of course, when it ended in 2011. Mm-hmm. I was walking down the hallway at Harpo, and one of the production managers, Lisa, she called my name and said, hey, would you be interested in working on this show? And she told me about it in the title. I was like, oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So it was just that sort of cosmic alignment. Yes. Being in a place and someone sees you and the light bulb goes off over their head. And yeah, it was just that simple. And I'm glad that that happened. So I came to work at Harpo Studios, though, because I was living in Los Angeles and I came back to Chicago to do a film. And the financing for that film that I came back to do fell apart. And so I had to decide whether or not to go back to Los Angeles. And so I started working at Harpo. I was logging tapes there. And I just needed a job because most of my days, the only thing I thought about was writing. I would work and then I would write. And I had been there and I was like, well, am I going to go back to Los Angeles? Or I've been there for a few months and I got the job there shooting some behind the scenes footage of Bring Your Kids to Work Day. Mm -hmm. And I was assigned to follow Reggie Wells. Yeah. Oprah's makeup artist for about mm-hmm. 20 years or so. And I met him and we were talking after all of that was done. And I said, well, I don't know if I should go back or what I should do. And he said, well, whoever you need to meet in Los Angeles, because that's why I was there to meet people, just industry. He said, you're not going to meet anybody who's higher than the highest person who's here and all of the people you're going to meet here. And when he said it, sometimes you hear things and it makes sense to you. Mm-hmm. And it made sense to me that I was in a place of opportunity and I'm thinking about going somewhere else instead of realizing perhaps I've been planted in very fertile soil nice. uh, and perhaps I'm where I need to be. So look mm-hmm. at it as an opportunity and take advantage of it, appreciate it. So yeah, that's how it came to be for me and how I ended up staying in Chicago and ending up on Beyond the Fix My Life. I remember when I first met her, I'm trying to, I, I think it was in a conference room mm-hmm. in Harpo Studios, and that she was exactly who she was. <laughs> she reminded me of my aunt and my mom, and it wasn't a put-on, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? I met folks, and when the camera goes off, then everything drops away, and they're a whole different person. But she wasn't, that wasn't her. So that was really one of the first things I remember. And she addressed me, and she would call me like, Mr. Greg. And so mm-hmm. one of the things, and I, I know I mentioned this to you uh, before, was it was the environment was essentially, it was predominantly, Harper was predominantly white. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, was in Chicago. And the show itself, even the people who were the executives. So you all treated me, you extended the way you talked to me mm-hmm. as a person. To me, when you do that, people, you give them some agency. 
And so other people have to take your lead in how they talk to you and they treat you. Right. And I was glad to be there because of that and the experience. And that you did that. You know, you would talk to me. And I recall, what was it? We were just in between takes, talk about things. Mm -hmm. And you were thoughtful and recognizing that you were a work in progress. So, and it just was, again, just a grounded in a sense. That's, and that's really what, why I enjoyed being there. You were grounded. Yala mm-hmm. was grounded. You got it. I remember specifically making note of you because of all the things you just talked about and the infrastructure there. But also you had a very and have a very and the energy of what I got from you immediately was like, this is a solid brother who has a lot of quiet strength like that's what i there was a solidness to you there was a solidness to brother keith on the camera yeah there was a solidness to him you know that and, yeah. and, and i could feel that from the brother and i felt that from you so there was a soul that i was becoming familiar with in chicago and that's a lot of what you heard from me to you and it was something that i was beginning to feel in the air there because we did several shows from there because i have other pictures of us doing the arias family do you remember that this was the puerto rican family that we did and it was snow on the ground it was ice on the ground oh yeah yeah remember that we went into their house yeah i remember that and i remember being legitimately concerned about the sun he was volatile remember he punched the hole through the wall and and all of that remember that right yeah (laughs) yeah i I remember i i recall really being concerned that he would act out yep in some way violently that was a legit concern for me at that point when you arrived uh, and when i dealt with kianla it felt like i was treated as someone who is another person who they talked to as a person and i felt sometimes i was talked to as uh someone who was hired to do a job mm-hmm. uh kind of like a a uh a, i don't know if subject is the right word <laughs> but but it, it just wasn't the same type of interaction where you're dealing with someone who's capable and thoughtful and knowledgeable and who knows what they're doing and not an underling who you just kind of have to maybe talk at or down to in some direction i totally understand um, so yeah i totally uh, understand uh, what you're saying right and so there was some of that and it, it was really good to be involved when you all when you arrived mm-hmm. and were a I guess I say normal person you know just like I'm I'm a brother I'm a brother you know right and let me tell you when I first got a whiff of that when I first got a whiff of what you're talking about is when we were in San Antonio and we were shooting this story mm-hmm. called on uh, these two sisters the Hudson sisters we were in San Antonio Texas and at the end of that shoot, brother, one of the guys in the crew, he stopped me because I was, I guess we were saying goodbye to each other or whatever. And he stopped me and he said, I just want to say, brother, and I think he probably was a Latino brother. He said, I just want to say thank you for talking to me and treating me like a person, like a human being. And I thought, mm-hmm. and it just struck me when he said it, like it would never cross my mind not to. And then it struck me, oh, wow, he works in a world. All this happens in the blink of an eye, right? This level of mm-hmm. understanding. It all happens in the blink of an eye. Oh, wow. He works in a world where people don't even acknowledge his presence. Right. That's what his days look like. Yeah. So the moments that we had spent together, what he was stopping me to say was, thank you for talking to me, for asking about, I'm, I'm ad-libbing now, for asking about my daughter and my dog, you know, that I had an accident yeah. on the way to work. Thank you for actually talking to me about it, you know, or hearing what I ha- think and feel about it. Right. Connected. Yeah. yeah. That's when I got so that. You are definitely connected. 
Yeah, and, and so so that's the first hint I got of what you're saying. And then the other part of what I hear you're saying, that's another level of awakening when you realize after all the years that you've spent in television, that I've spent in television, or doing just living, doing whatever work we have done in our lives, when it becomes clear to you in the moment, at whatever moment that is for you, that I'm a part of something that's important, that what we're doing here together is important. Like this, you can feel it. I hear you talking about that. Mm-hmm. Like you can feel it in your in your blood that this work. You might not be able to describe it. You might not even be processing it that way. But you can feel in the energy of the work that you're doing that this matters, as opposed to me standing in a field in Pennsylvania as an executive at Discovery Channel, overseeing a program that takes giant trebuchets and slingshots objects across the field to see how far you can throw objects. <laughs> Like, that don't satisfy my soul. Like, I'm standing there being responsible for this shit. That's when you know you got to (laughs) go. Like, you can do the work, but there's nothing attached to what you're doing. You're just making sausage and packaging it. So when you have a moment on this kind of series where you have an awakening and awareness that, oh, wow, we're doing something that matters. So by the time that, that we met, I was aware that I'm part of a group of people doing something that matters. What we're doing is important. Because being in those moments, man, I mean, I looked, I remember one moment, I think it was that Shannon Wiley story, where I looked up in this small room we were shooting in, Brother Keith was crying, I was crying, I mean, all the camera people were crying, it was just like, we just, it became those moments let you know that you are a part of God's work. You just want to be good at it. You just want to do it well. Right. I was watching the clip where Shannon's father hugged him this mm-hmm. morning I was watching that and I remember you can't help but to feel that uh, yeah I mean it was there were multiple times on set uh, on location where I would become emotional mm-hmm. uh, and as I think about it now I, I'm feeling that this is people's lives and this is the point where they are changing where they're dealing with things that have been their undoing and we've come together to, to make it better to be a source of hope when we worked together in 2014 so a year after we met and we came back and we did a whole series of shows in Chicago where we had that house like you talked about earlier and so I was driving I had driven my black Tahoe all the way from Washington so I had a car That's full right, of, remember that <laughs> I would drive everywhere right <laughs> no planes for me I took a few planes with people but mostly if it was if it was within reason I would drive it myself so I'm pulling up every day with my black Tahoe and I got it's full of shit everywhere pillows everything you know so I'm trying to get it in some kind of order and I always remember seeing you walking from the end of the street like just coming like you had either gotten off the subway line or you had just lived around the corner oh, yeah. I didn't know I just remember seeing you walking and you would be walking and you always okay. had that look on your face very serene you know this is all me making it up in my mind right I don't know if any of this was true you could have been you know been chaotic and haphazard and full of panic I don't know but when I would see you walking and I'm straightening up my car and trying to just get it you know locked down or whatever and I would see you walking up the street and you would just have that serene look on your face and it was always very tranquil and strong and yet even I thought well okay that's the effect of that that I always took from your presence the calming part yeah the seas are stable and they may be deep but they're stable mm-hmm. I, I've heard that because before. if you look at that picture that um, I sent you this morning with you off in the corner in the gray t-shirt and you're looking over like mm-hmm. I, I captured you right when the scene was going if you zoom in on your face and just look at you like it's that look like I and again I'm making this up in my mind but I would always see what I saw through the lens in that moment was you either thinking of the story I was writing was you're identifying your soul is being fed 
by what you're looking at and you were deep in some space there were a couple of levels on which you were processing what you were seeing that's the look that you always had like you were always doing that kind of math or calculus or balance in your head and it always remained even keel that's what i like i didn't see you have like hot and maybe you had them again i'm making this shit up you tell me if i'm pushed back i didn't see you have any flare-ups or blow-ups like probably same with me i've been described as many ways of being very difficult to work with and i know what i want to see vision wise and that's important to me that we execute that as best we can so Mm -hmm. i would always experience you as sort of well, you tell me, how were you experiencing yourself at that time? Love from nobody. Find yourself 